We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 50 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, April 29th, 2021. It is the day of the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. All of the hype, all of the buildup, all of the preparation, all of the mock drafts, all of the talk, it all ends tonight. The Washington football team, in case you haven't heard, has the number 19 overall pick. What's going to go down? What are we going to be talking about on Friday's podcast? It is fitting that this episode of the Al Galdi podcast is episode 50, a nice round number for the day of the first round of the draft, something we've been building up to since this podcast started in late February. Episode 50. Should I make my wife cook me some bacon like Skyler did for Walter? on his 50th birthday in Breaking Bad, and then put the bacon so that it reads 5-0? I think I'm going to do that. I like that. What would Walter White do for the Washington football team tonight? Would Walter trade up for Justin Fields or Trey Lance? Walter would probably blow up whichever teams he felt like were in contention to take Fields or Lance, so Walter could have his pick of the two. Anyway, big night tonight. I'm excited. I know that many of you are excited as well. I have put together rhyming keys for tonight. Yes, my rhyming keys. Those of you who listen to me on 980 know of what I speak. If you don't know, don't worry, you will know. But I will give you in just a few minutes the keys to a successful first round of the 2021 NFL Draft for the Washington football team. Also, are we looking at the draft all wrong? Yeah, I've got one last draft theory topic that I want to throw at you before the draft happens. And that is this, are draft picks overrated? 
You know, I've been one of many people over the years who values the draft pick. Maybe I'm looking at this all wrong. Is it possible that tonight doesn't matter as much as we think? We shall explore. Uh, also, special guest on the podcast, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics, a pioneer in football analytics. Brian Burke is the guy who invented air yards. Brian's a local, and Brian's going to talk Washington football team and NFL draft with us because Brian has developed ESPN's Draft Day Predictor, a high-level statistical model that gives percentage chances of each prospect being available and being selected at each draft slot. So what are we looking at when it comes to the likes of Fields and Lance and Micah Parsons and Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa in terms of those guys being available to Washington at various spots in that first round? Brian Burke will explain. Now, speaking of ESPN, did you see what ESPN NFL insiders Jeremy Fowler and Dan Graziano had in a piece that came out regarding last-minute draft nuggets? So the piece included the following on the Washington football team. I got a kick out of all this. So uh, the, the team, quote, has done legwork on a potential trade-up, making phone calls to teams in or around the top 10. We've talked to a few personnel evaluators who think Washington's target is not a quarterback end quote. Okay, put that off to the side. Next nugget, quote, it's worth noting Trey Lance went through the pre-draft process thinking Washington was among the teams very high on him and general manager Martin Mayhew spent time with the North Dakota State staff in Fargo, end quote. Okay, so on the one hand, Washington is making calls about a trade-up. On the other hand, the trade-up may not be for a quarterback, But then on the third hand, Trey Lance himself thought that Washington was very high on him. Okay, not sure all of that lines up as all being able to be true, but maybe. Uh, Also in the article, quote, if Washington stays put at number 19, keep an eye out for TCU safety Trevon Merrig as a possibility. We're told Washington likes him a lot. He's expected to be the first safety off the board, end quote. At this point in the pre-draft process, who hasn't Washington been linked to? Who hasn't Washington been said to really like or even love? Like, that's the way it's gone. We're ready for this draft, okay? It's time for the draft to happen. We need the draft to happen. We have officially reached the end of pre-draft talk. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing left to say, okay? It's like the end of the internet. There's no other site to visit. We've seen all of the sites uh, at this point. For the record, my prediction for tonight is Christian Darisaw. I think Washington takes Darisaw, the Virginia Tech offensive tackle, at 19. I don't think that Washington ends up trading up for a quarterback because I don't think that that opportunity is realistically going to be available to Washington. I think all five of the quarterbacks are going to go in the top 10. I hope that's not the case. I just fear that it is. But the beauty of tonight is that Washington doesn't have to be locked in on one guy. You know, I know as a fan, I'm not locked in on one guy. There are a number of guys who I would be fine with Washington taking at 19. Darisaw, Micah Parsons, the Penn State linebacker, as long as you're comfortable with the character stuff. Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, the Notre Dame linebacker. Trevon Merrig, the TCU safety. All these guys, to me, would be just fine at 19. And with a guy like Merrig, I mean, maybe you could even trade down a few spots to take him. But, you know, if you like the guy enough, just take him at 19. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I will talk, by the way, some non-Washington football team stuff on this installment of the podcast. Big win for the Wizards over the Los Angeles Lakers at Capital One Arena on Wednesday night. Very nice win for the Nationals over the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida on Wednesday night. A, uh, another loss for the Orioles to the New York Yankees at Camden Yards on Wednesday night 
uh, as well. But I got this email from Keith Hodges. Uh, Keith says, love the podcast. Start my commute with the AGP every day. Ah, yes, a nice uh, abbreviation there, Al Goldie podcast. Uh, Keith says, one of these first-round quarterbacks is going to be a gigantic bust. Will the real Josh Rosen or Jake Locker please stand up? Who's most likely to have their jersey number dangling from their ear and be this draft's biggest disappointment? P.S. Can't imagine the show leading not being the theme song now. It's so bad. It's good. Thank you very much, Keith. Another convert to the intro song. No doubt, though, you are 100% right about that. There will be a bust or probably bust when it comes to the big five quarterbacks in this draft. Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Trey Lance. They're not all going to hit. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know the bus rate on first-round quarterbacks over the last decade or so is about 67%. It's about two out of three don't work out. So if you go by that, at least three out of the five, maybe even four out of the five don't end up working out. I can tell you with certainty, they're not all going to work out. Okay, so as much as you hear about all of these guys being so good and so promising, and they all have talent, and uh, I don't look at any of them as like, oh, this guy's got no shot. I don't, but I know enough to know they're not all going to hit. There will be multiple flops out of this group. There's not a question in my mind about that. And the and the the what's up to NFL teams is, well, which ones are going to be busts? You know, I think Trevor Lawrence is pretty close to a sure thing. After that, there are questions about all four of these guys, Wilson, Fields, Jones, and Lance, and they're not all going to hit. There's no question about that. Email from Darren. He says, hi, Al. Hi, Darren. I've noticed on the WFT podcast I listen to that people have mostly stopped talking about the possibility of drafting a wide receiver at number 19. While I agree that that is not the most likely outcome, I don't understand why it has fallen off the radar to the extent that it has. I know you are a devout BPA guy, and I am writing this with that in mind. I'm not saying receiver should be a priority over linebacker, defensive back, offensive tackle, or quarterback, but it's not a position that screams, do not draft here, either. As an aside, I also would not be freaked out if the WFT took a defensive end at number 19, although that appears very unlikely. There is young sweat and dot, dot, dot. Uh, very good points. I don't disagree with any of them. I am a BPA guy. And if the BPA on Washington's board when that number 19 pick comes up is a receiver, then take him or you can trade down. But as most of you listening right now know, this is a draft that is loaded at receiver, right? Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, Rashad Bateman, Elijah Moore, Rondale Moore, Kadarius Toney. There are a lot of good receivers, or at least it seems, in this draft. And if you really like one of these guys, and that guy or multiple guys who you like are available to you at 19, I'm not going to yell and scream if Washington does that, if Washington takes a receiver. And your point about defensive end, or as I like to say, edge rusher, I think that's accurate. You don't have depth beyond the big two, beyond Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Who is your top backup edge rusher for the Washington football team going into the 2021 season, assuming Ryan Kerrigan is not re-signed. And boy, isn't that interesting. He is still out there as a free agent. I'm, I'm starting to think the likelihood has gone up that Washington brings Kerrigan back just because the market for him seems to be ice cold, okay? I mean, you're not hearing anything about Kerrigan and he's still languishing out there on the free agent market. And I, I wouldn't have an issue if Washington brought Kerrigan back. Him not coming back, I think it's more about him than it is about Washington. I think Washington would bring him back on the cheap. He wants to start. 
but he's not getting that opportunity. It sure doesn't look like, at least not right now. You know, maybe somebody gets hurt and Kerrigan gets an opportunity that way. But yeah, uh, backup edge rusher. Remember Ryan Anderson left via free agency for the New York Giants. Um, yeah, you do need uh, some depth there when it comes to the pass rush. Tonight is a big night for the Washington football team. Let's hope that we look back upon tonight as a great night. All right, well, someone who I know is very excited for the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft when it comes to the Washington football team is Dr. Matthew Mintz, a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast. So as you likely know, our healthcare system is, shall we say, far from perfect. You want to see a doctor, you have to book an appointment like three months out. Then when your appointment finally arrives, you have to wait in the waiting room for like an hour. Then the actual appointment ends up being short and not to your satisfaction. And if you have a question days later, forget about getting a call back from your doctor in a timely fashion. Well, Dr. Matthew Mintz is pushing back on all of this. He is an internal medicine and primary care physician whose concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned personalized care in which every patient is a person not a number. Dr. Mintz offers next day, even same day appointments, longer appointment times, 24-7 after hours access. And how about this? Lab work that's done in the office. So you don't have to go schlepping all over town to get your blood drawn. Also, unlike most other concierge practices, Dr. Matthew Mintz can generate invoices for patients that can be submitted for reimbursement from most insurances. His office is located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center across the street from Balducci's. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast, and he offers a free meet and greet in person or virtual so you can see if his practice is right for you. Set up your free meet and greet by going to drmintz.com. That's D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com, drmintz.com. Or you can call his office. Tell his office that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, the free meet and greet. The phone number is 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician who provides medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be. And tell him Al Galdi sent you. So the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft is big, is special, is worthy of something big and special. And those of you who listened to me on 980 for years are perhaps familiar with my rhyming keys. Rhyming keys is something I started doing a few years ago on my show before Washington football team games. The idea was keys to a Washington win, but in rhyming fashion. You know, we've all seen analysts do their keys to games for years. And the keys, for whatever reason, always are done with these, like, corny puns, these plays on words. And so I thought, let's take the corniness to the extreme. Let's make the keys rhyme. Now, understand, these rhymes are not meant to be good. In fact, I have a saying, the worse the rhyme, the better the time. And so here we go. For the very first time on the Al Galdi podcast, my rhyming keys, rhyming keys, for a successful first round of the 2021 NFL Draft for the Washington football team. Here we go. Rhyming key number one. BPA every pick every day. He's super smart. Yes, exactly, Joe Gibbs. That was, of course, one of Joe Gibbs' favorite sayings. He's super smart. He's super smart. Yes, well, the way to do a proper NFL Draft, the way to be super smart with your draft, is to do it by picking the best players available, BPA, as opposed to picking for need. Now, this isn't some revolutionary thought, okay? This has been out there for years, but I'm a big believer in this, and I want Washington to abide by this, and I tend to think that Washington will. 
But with this new look front office of Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew, Marty Herney, Chris Polian, Eric Stokes, I want the draft board to be the guide. Let the draft board be your North Star. You've put months of work into the draft board. Trust it. Abide by it. If the board isn't very good, then you shouldn't be here, okay? I mean, let's just be honest about this. But if this front office, with all of this general manager experience, is what we hope the front office is, then the board is sound and the board should be adhered to. You should never draft exclusively or even primarily for need. That's not to say that need should never enter into the equation, but need really should be put to the back burner always. Needs change constantly depending on injuries and other circumstances. And especially if you're not a Super Bowl contender, you really shouldn't be paying any attention to need. Today's position group of strength is tomorrow's position group of need, depending on injuries, who's underperforming, who's not getting along with who, etc. Free agency is for need. Free agency is where you address specific needs. The draft is where you load up on a bunch of good players, regardless of position. So rhyming key number one, BPA, every pick, every day. Rhyming keys for a successful first round of the 2021 NFL Draft for the Washington football team. Rhyming key number two, and this one has to do with questionable character players who Washington is perhaps considering drafting. Here we go. They don't all have to be nice, but they can't be like Darius Geis. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, we talked about this on Monday's podcast, the painful recent phenomenon of Washington blowing first and second round picks on character-deficient players. Josh Doxson, first round of the 2016 draft. Sua Craven, second round of the 2016 draft. Darius Geis, second round of the 2018 draft. Dwayne Haskins, first round of the 2019 draft. And certainly only Geis out of those four players is alleged to have committed criminal behavior, but all four very clearly had issues when it came to being NFL players beyond just what they could do on the field. And so that brings me to someone like the Penn State linebacker, Micah Parsons, who if he's not the best linebacker in this draft, he's the second best linebacker in this draft. And the guy is so impressive. Measured at the Penn State Pro Day as being 6'3", 246, ran a 40-yard dash of 4.39 seconds, didn't play in 2020, but was a monster in his 2019 sophomore season. But there are character concerns regarding Micah Parsons. ESPN.com report that came out last November shed light on a lawsuit filed in January 2020 by a former Penn State football player named Isaiah Humphreys, who claimed that he was the victim of hazing and harassment, some of it sexually suggested by Parsons and other players in 2018. Humphreys told school investigators that Parsons and Penn State defensive tackle Damian Barber threatened Humphreys, telling him they were, quote, making me a B because this is a prison, end quote. Humphreys also said that Parsons and Barber would try to place genitalia close to players' faces and simulate sex acts and attempt to touch him in the shower. Additionally, there was a fight in March 2018 between Humphreys and Parsons. Humphreys told a school investigator that Parsons was choking Humphreys and wouldn't stop, so Humphreys pulled out a pocket knife, which he said led Parsons to stop the choking and ended the fight. Is all of this true? I don't know. Is Parsons a bad person? I don't know. But I tell you what, if I'm Washington, I better find out. I better have done all due diligence possible. I better not have done as Washington did with, say, Sua Cravens. Sua reportedly once went missing for three days while at USC while dealing with an injury. Washington didn't know about this 
when the team drafted Sua in the second round of the 2016 draft. That was according to Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN. How does that happen? How do you not know about a guy once having gone missing for three days while at USC? I mean, not some, you know, Division three school. USC, the Trojans, Southern California. And you don't know that this guy went missing for three days? That cannot happen. Keim also has reported that Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers removed Geis from their draft board prior to the 2018 draft over concerns about his knees and his character. So what is the stance on Parsons? And more globally, because this really isn't just about Michael Parsons, what's the stance on questionable character guys? You're never going to have a team full of choir boys, but what you can't do is spend first and second round picks on guys who have serious mental health issues or have serious work ethic issues or for whom you question the love of football, because when you spend first and second round picks on people who fit these descriptions, you blow first and second round picks. And Washington is not in a position to be blowing first and second round picks. And understand, this is not about morality. This isn't about like, oh, you can't have bad people on your team. This is about building a sustained winner. And you can't be blowing first and second round picks. And so rhyming key number two, having to do with questionable character players who Washington is considering drafting. They don't all have to be nice, but they can't be like Darius Geis. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Rhyming keys for a successful first round of the 2021 NFL Draft for the Washington football team. Rhyming key number three. And this has to do with what we've spent so much time discussing. Washington potentially taking a quarterback in the first round. If a quarterback plummets with the last name of Fields or Lance, be bold. Be aggressive and take that chance. We have spent a lot of time on the podcast over the last few weeks talking about both Washington potentially drafting a quarterback and about draft theory when it comes to taking quarterbacks. The recent history is undeniable. Trading up into top threes to take quarterbacks is incredibly expensive and doesn't work out often enough to justify the expense. That doesn't mean that you should never do it, but that does mean that it's very much buyer beware. However, if a quarterback drops in a first round and the cost to trade up all of a sudden is significantly lessened and you really like that quarterback, then by all means do it. Success belongs to the bold. I'm a big believer in that. When you are a franchise quarterback needy team as Washington is and has been for years, you do whatever you need to do to get a franchise quarterback. Now that doesn't mean that you make yourself fall in love with someone. And so if Washington isn't truly in love with Fields or Lance, then forget it. You know, there are definite reasons for concern with each guy, but there's also a lot to like with each guy. Each guy is an athletic freak. Each guy profiles as a prototype for the modern dual threat NFL quarterback. I am assuming that Mac Jones is going to be the number three overall pick to the San Francisco 49ers. I know there's been a lot out there recently of, well, San Fran doesn't know what it's going to do, and maybe that's true, but I tend to think that Mac Jones is the play and probably has been the play all along. Remember, the Niners have a coach-centric approach similar to what Washington has. Kyle Shanahan is running that show. Mac Jones very much fits what Kyle Shanahan likes, a high-level processing quarterback, a guy who knows where to go with the football, a guy who's accurate, a guy who maybe doesn't have top-end athleticism, but a guy who has a very high floor and someone who could be like a newer, maybe even better version of Kirk Cousins for Kyle. There remains a very good chance that all five of the big five quarterbacks in this draft go in the top 10, and trading up for any of them isn't truly an option for Washington. But Fields and Lance have been all over the place in the mock drafts. NFL analyst Chris Sims of NBC Sports in his mock draft had Fields falling all the way to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at number 32. Now, do I think that that's going to happen? No. 
Did Sims do that just for attention? And so people like me say his name? Probably. But still, even putting the Sims mock aside, there's a wide range of opinion of Fields and Lance and where each guy is going to go. If Ron Rivera and company really and truly believe in Fields or Lance and the faith is genuine and not Washington trying to make itself fall in love with the guy and the guy falls, then make the move. I have no problem with that. Rhyming key number three. If a quarterback plummets with the last name of Fields or Lance, be bold, be aggressive, and take that chance. Rhyming keys for a successful first round of the 2021 NFL Draft for the Washington football team. I have one more. It is number four, and it may be the most important key of them all, and it goes like this. If this is truly to be a night that we all enjoy, don't let the pick be made by Danny Boy. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. Same to you. What can never, ever, ever happen again is Dan Snyder doing as he did in 2019 and dictating who Washington's first round pick in the draft is. It would have been bad enough if Danny had gotten the pick right because of what him dictating the pick said about organizational culture and what him dictating the pick did for morale and football operations. But that Danny got the pick wrong that Dwayne Haskins was a total whiff, a total bust, of course made everything so much worse. Are the days of Danny pulling a stunt like that over? We hope so, but we can't know so. This is, of course, supposed to be the coach-centric approach. This is, of course, supposed to be Ron Rivera's show. He is the Don. He is, as I call him, Don Ron. Every indication since he got hired as Washington's head coach two Januarys ago is that this is, in fact, the case. This is Ron's show. But We all know how this can go, how quickly things can turn. I don't believe that that has happened, but off what did happen in 2019, Dan Snyder ordering the team to take Dwayne Haskins with the number 15 overall pick when Washington's football people had a second or even third round grade on Haskins, you can't ever dismiss the threat of the Danny. And so rhyming key number four, if this is truly to be a night that we all enjoy, don't let the pick be made by Donnie Boy. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, sir. Thank you, Danny. And a happy Thanksgiving to every one of you listening. So those are my keys to a successful first round of the 2021 NFL Draft for the Washington football team. But what if Washington didn't have a first round pick? Is it possible that we're looking at the NFL Draft all wrong? We get into that now. All right, so with the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft being tonight, we, of course, have been waiting and discussing and speculating and thinking and processing for months. We have on this podcast done much in the way of not just draft preview, but also draft theory. What works? What doesn't? What is the truth about drafting quarterbacks, et cetera? Well, here's a draft theory topic that we haven't gotten into that I've wanted to get into because it runs counter to what many of us believe. Are draft picks overrated? Yes. This whole thing about accumulating draft picks, stockpiling draft picks, not wanting to trade away draft picks. The thing that you've heard me say over and over, if Washington trades up from number 19 to number four, even into just the top 10, how many draft picks is that going to cost? You really want to be giving up a bunch of draft picks for a quarterback who, given the recent history, has like a 33% chance of working out. Well, What if we're looking at this all wrong? What if draft picks should be viewed simply as currency and not as these ultra important assets? 
I want you to take a listen to something. This was Ron Rivera at his pre-draft Zoom press conference two Fridays ago, April 16th. As far as I'm concerned, all our draft picks are, are capital. And, you know, you, you've got to look at uh, how you spend them. If, if, if you trade up and you have to use one of your draft picks to do that, like let's say you traded up a fourth, well, to me, that person you end up drafting, part of that is he's partly your fourth pick. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people look at us all, well, we, you know, you wasted a trade. No, you use that as capital to gain a player. Um, so I, I look at them as they're valuable. I, I'd love to have all of our draft picks and get everything we need out of them. Um, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you go up. Sometimes you go back to get more. So, uh, again, we will react to the 18 teams in front of us. All right, that was actually the last answer that Ron gave at that pre-draft Zoom press conference on April 16th. And like a lot of what Ron and also General Manager Morton Mayhew said at that Zoom presser, it was noncommittal. You could sort of frame what we just heard from Ron as reason to believe Ron is unlikely to trade up in the first round. You could also frame what we just heard from Ron as him hinting that the Washington football team trading up in the first round is likely. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can twist and turn these things. But that opening line that he had, quote, as far as I'm concerned, all of our draft picks are capital, end quote. He's not wrong about that. He's not. And the notion of draft picks as capital is something that is definitely subscribed to right now by one of the more successful teams in the NFL in the Los Angeles Rams. And there's irony to that because, of course, the Rams were the recipients of massive draft capital in the RG3 trade, right? Washington in March 2012 traded three first-round picks and a second-round pick to the Rams to move up from number six to number two in the 2012 NFL draft to take a quarterback, Robert Griffin III. But a funny thing happened with that trade. While RG3 ended up not working out for Washington beyond his spectacular rookie season, the Rams actually ended up not doing much with the Hall that they received from Washington. That's always the thing to remember about the RG3 trade. If Robert continues to do as he did in 2012, then that trade's a complete no-brainer and a total win for Washington, even if he's like a lesser version of his 2012 self, but still pretty good. You know, like top 12, that trade is still a win for Washington. Now, the Rams in February 2012 hired Les Snead as their general manager. He technically was the GM for the RG3 trade in March 2012, though the Rams head coach at the time, Jeff Fisher, had a lot to do with that trade too. Jeff and Mike Shanahan were friends. But I've always wondered this. Did that trade fundamentally alter how Les Snead looks at draft picks? Because the way the Rams are doing things right now is in complete contrast to the way we are taught to do things with our draft picks, to the way that so many teams try to do things when they come to draft picks. Do you know that the Rams, as things stand right now, do not have a first-round pick until the 2024 NFL draft? We are currently in the year 2021. The Rams are not scheduled to have a first-round pick until the 2024 NFL draft. And it's not just that. The Rams haven't made a first-round pick since the Jared Goff pick. Yes, the Rams' last first-round pick was taking Goff with the number one overall pick in the 2016 NFL Draft. So the Rams, as things stand now, and this can change, right? Maybe the Rams trade for first-round pick in the coming years. But as things stand right now, the Rams have no first-round picks from 2017 
through 2023. Think about that. Seven consecutive drafts in which the team doesn't have a first round pick. And the Rams penchant for trading away draft picks really has become something else. April 2016, you had the trade that ultimately landed the Rams golf. The Rams traded a 2016 first round pick, number 15 overall, a 2017 first round pick, two 2016 second round picks, a 2016 third round pick, and a 2017 third round pick to the Tennessee Titans for their 2016 first round pick, number one overall, a 2016 fourth round pick, and a 2016 sixth round pick. Rams used that 2016 number one overall pick on golf and of course traded him this offseason with two more number one picks to the Detroit Lions for another quarterback in Matthew Stafford. The amount of first round picks that the Rams ended up investing in Jared Goff either to get him or to get rid of him really is incredible. April 2017, the Rams traded a 2018 second round pick as part of a package to the Buffalo Bills for a package that featured receiver Sammy Watkins. March 2018, the Rams traded a 2019 second round pick as part of a package to the Kansas City Chiefs for a package that featured corner Marcus Peters. April 2018, the Rams traded their 2018 first round pick as part of a package to the New England Patriots for a package that featured receiver Brandon Cooks. October 2018, the Rams traded a 2019 third round pick and a 2020 fifth round pick to the Jacksonville Jaguars for edge rusher Dante Fowler. October 2019, the Rams traded their 2020 and 2021 first round picks and a 2021 fourth round pick to the Jacksonville Jaguars for corner Jalen Ramsey. And then this past March, the aforementioned Stafford trade, the Rams traded golf their 2022 and 2023 first round picks and a 2021 third round pick to the Detroit Lions for quarterback Matthew Stafford. The Rams have distributed first round picks like people give out Halloween candy. The Rams, as we speak, again, no first round picks 2017 through 2023. Now, what's really interesting about that is this. Seven consecutive drafts without a first round pick is actually not the record. In terms of the longest first round pick drought in NFL history, that record belongs to, yes, Washington, which in fact has the two longest first round pick droughts in NFL history. Remember, the Rams are not there yet in terms of seven consecutive drafts without a first round pick. The Rams are scheduled to get there seven consecutive drafts without a first round pick. But the two longest first round pick droughts in NFL history belong to our team, the Washington football team. 11 seasons, 1969 through 1979, and seven seasons, 1984 through 1990. It really is something else if you study the history of the Washington football team when it comes to the NFL draft. Washington, incredibly, made just four first-round picks over 23 drafts from 1969 to 1991. How about that? Four first-round picks over 23 drafts from 69 to 91. And the four first round picks were, take a listen to these names, 1980, Art Monk, 1981, Mark May, 1983, Daryl Green, 1991, Bobby Wilson. So with the first three, you hit home runs, right? Monk, May, Green. And yet, despite Washington having just four first round picks over 23 drafts from 69 to 91, Washington, over those 23 years, 69 to 91, uh, did quite well, as you may know. Three Super Bowl championships, five NFC championships, 18 winning seasons. Now, that was a different NFL, to be sure. 
You did not have modern NFL free agency. The game was very different. So back then it was a lot easier to do well if you didn't have a lot in the way of draft picks. But really starting with the George Allen era, and George was like allergic to draft choices, but also continuing into the glory days of the 80s and early 90s. Like everyone knows George Allen wasn't in love with the draft, but how many people recall that the Bobby Beathard, Joe Gibbs, Washington football teams weren't exactly making usage of one first round pick after another. And yet Washington had the success that it did during that time. Now you look at the Rams. Again, not a single first round pick since 2016. And yet what have the Rams done in recent years? The Rams have had four consecutive winning seasons, 2017 through 2020, coinciding exactly with Sean McVay's tenure as head coach. And included in those four consecutive winning seasons are three straight double-digit win seasons, three playoff appearances, and an NFC championship for the 2018 season, right? McVay took the Rams to a Super Bowl. So you have to say, so far, so good with this approach of giving away first-round picks like you're talking about Halloween candy. And I think this has to do with a few things. I think the biggest thing, though, is this. If you are the Rams and you have an excellent head coach in the former Washington offensive coordinator, Sean McVay, and you really believe in your head coach and his coaching staff, there is a bit of an organizational arrogance. And I say that in a complimentary way where you're not really that invested in, we have to get first round picks. It's like, we'll get who we get and we'll coach them up and scheme it up to where we'll maximize what we have and we'll be just fine. And you know what? So far the Rams have been. I mean, again, it's hard to argue with what the Rams have done. If I asked you to list the best NFL franchises over the last four years. Rams aren't at the top of that list, but you're not listing teams for very long until you get to the Rams. I mean, they get four straight winning seasons, three double-digit win seasons, three playoff appearances, and a conference championship. If your coaching staff is as good as the Rams has been, you can get away with this. Now, it's not ideal. It's not the way, personally, I would run an organization, but it's a really interesting case study. The Rams are zigging while everyone else is zagging. While we talk about all these different teams accumulating picks and, you know, the Miami Dolphins have this many picks and the Jacksonville Jaguars have that many picks. It's like, here you have the Rams. They're just dishing away, giving away first round picks, getting back some high-end talent, no doubt. But, you know, also some of that high-end talent is no longer with the team. And especially in a situation like the golf situation, I mean, the Rams really spent way too much on golf from a draft capital standpoint. All the picks to get them, and then now the picks attached to them to get rid of them. And yet still, here we are, and the Rams have done quite well. There are many ways to have success in life, as most people listening know. And I think you can apply that to the NFL. It doesn't have to be cookie cutter. It's not that every team has to do things the exact same way. And the Rams are kind of emblematic of that. They're doing things in a very different way, but they're doing things in a successful way. Not unlike our team, the Washington football team, did many years ago. All right, so with the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft on Thursday night, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a true pioneer in the world of football analytics, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics. He founded the website Advanced Football Analytics in 2006. He was in the Navy for 15 years. He's from Baltimore, now resides in Virginia, and he has come up with something that is fascinating regarding the NFL draft. We're going to get into that in a moment. But Brian, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? Yeah, it's it's good to hear your voice. Um, thanks for having me on. Appreciate you coming on very much. And I was thinking about you and all the work you've done over the years 
in football analytics. It, it really is amazing and wonderful how much football analytics has taken off over the last few years. When you take a step back, like, is that impressive to you? Is your reaction more like, hey, guys, what took you so long? Like, what, how do you view the rise of analytics in football, especially the NFL, in recent seasons? Yeah, to be honest, so I, I started doing this kind of stuff, like you said, in 2006, and it was just a big hobby to me, and nobody else was doing it. I mean, it was kind of a, a wide-open field. Um, there were kind of some, you know, kind of half-started projects that came along, but um, – for whatever reason, the, the stuff I was doing really kind of caught on. And um, I thought that I was just going to be this lone voice in the corner of the Internet, and it would never really catch on, like, <clears throat> within the league itself. Um, I had this, you know, small fan base, this kind of niche website um, that was that was really, you know, fun to work on, but I never thought teams would really do this stuff. And then um, – in 2009, there was that Belichick fourth and two, and a lot of what I was doing was kind of decision analysis stuff, fourth down problem, and that just precipitated a lot of attention. And then all of a sudden, you know, Sports Illustrated started calling, and uh, um, you know, ESPN did a feature on me, and then uh, uh, teams started calling, and then once it got enough momentum, and I think. It's analytic success in baseball and other sports uh, helped as well, but now it's now it's just widespread. It's everywhere, Um, and it's it's kind of amazing to see. Yeah, it's so funny when you think about the timeline, right? Because you start advanced football analytics in 2006. You just mentioned baseball. Bill James started doing his thing like in what the 70s, early 80s. Moneyball comes out in 2003, and yet even in 06, this is still such a nascent phenomenon in the NFL. The idea of analytics—I mean, it just really shows you how slow the NFL was to pick up on this. But I guess better late than never. Were you the first person, by the way, to write about air yards? We hear about air yards all the time now. I feel like you were the first guy to do that. But am I right in saying that? I did. Yeah. Um, I did. Air yards was mine, and it was. Uh, it was an NFC East uh, motivated creation. So I was watching Donovan McNabb throw these, um, you know, these like swing passes to his running backs, and the running backs would go, you know, scamper for 80 yards and get a touchdown, and McNabb's passer rating would go through the roof. And I said, you know, hey, there's this stat called yak, right? Yards after catch. Like, why aren't we talking about the 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 complement to that, right? Which is the the air yards. And so, yeah, I thought of it and I kind of gave it its name and, and now it's everywhere. It's like an official statistic, I think. It's a great stat. And again, it's like, man, how come we weren't talking about this 20, 30, 40 years ago? No doubt. Well, excellent. It's great to talk to you again. And I wanted to have you on to talk about the ESPN Draft Day Predictor, which is a fascinating thing to have and something that can maybe help us better project NFL drafts like we all know about the mock drafts and it's not like the mock drafts are just randomly put together like I know people make phone calls and try to work connections to try to figure out who's going to do what but the ESPN draft day predictor a statistical model that actually incorporates mock drafts but a number of other things to try to truly project who's going to do what in an NFL draft you devise this uh it is really next level I wonder if you could first before we get into what it's saying about the Washington football team just tell us uh, what was the process that went into putting this together yeah, so my original idea was to try to do some kind of wisdom of crowds type model and get a hold of all, like, thousands of fan-based mock drafts. You know, you go on a website and you and so I tried to get that 
data from, but I just never could. And I thought, okay, what, what can we do with like a limited number of, uh, of information? So I use these, you know, quote unquote expert mocks, right? Like, you know, Mel and Todd and there are several others. Um, and I measured like how correct are they or how wrong, how off are they? So when they say a player is actually, it's going to be taken at, you know, pick number 19, for example, how often are they actually taken at 10, at 11, and so on and so on. And with that information, you can kind of construct this model uh, using some heavy-duty math. And the idea was for teams. So I was consulting for teams at the time. I wanted them to have a way of knowing how likely a player would still be on the board at each pick number. So when they were deciding whether to trade up or trade back, they'd say, okay, we're not trading any further back than, say, a 90% chance this player we covet will still be available. Or, hey, we're going to trade up, but we're only going to trade up as far as we need to uh, to make sure that, the, you know, this player we want is still there. So that's what that tool is for. It's also, you know, it's fun for fans too. So if you're a Cowboys fan and you're waiting for, you know, you really want this wide receiver and you see C.D. Lamb just kind of falling down the board to you, kind of tell you, gives you a number. So it's, it's kind of like that win probability stuff I, I used to do where you kind of, you're, you're hoping for a certain outcome and you're kind of watching the numbers tick up and down. And the ESPN Draft Day Predictor also incorporates Scouts Inc. grades. Is that correct? Yes. So, you know, Scouts Inc. is, is Todd McShay's outfit. Um, and so since he's an, he's an ESPN partner, obviously, contributor, so we've got access to all the, all those grades. That's kind of how the model starts. Then it starts adding in factors like the, mo- the mocks themselves. And we add in factors like uh, team needs. And in particular, the quarterback need is, is kind of overriding. So that's a really big factor. Yes, and quarterback, of course, has been such a topic here in D.C. So when it comes to the 2021 NFL Draft, what does the ESPN Draft Day predictor say about the Washington football team with that number 19 overall pick in the first round? Yeah, so uh, I I think it's going to be pretty chalk. It really agrees with what I've seen and read and heard about what the what I'm going (laughs) to almost said it. Um, the Washington football team will do at 19. So, I mean, first off, maybe let's talk about quarterback. Now, that, that's a big need for the team, but it's not an it's not a burning need, right? They're not set at quarterback is one of my parameters, but it's not. It, I do have it as a need, but it's not a burning need. So, they at 19, it would be very, very expensive for them to go up to where the top tier quarterbacks are going to be. Uh, so, I don't think they're going to be able to do that. So I think the quarterbacks. That they would want in the first round uh, will be gone by ten. So, yeah, there's a chance somebody falls, um, but otherwise, it's not going to be a quarterback. Um, so that that leaves their needs. Everybody's talking about tackle, right? Um, and and I agree there. There's going to be some good tackles available to them at 19. Uh, some other positions as well, but I think they can get both a top tier tackle at 19 and then wait till what 51, I think in the second round. And then there's going to be some linebackers available for them at 51. So they can get both those needs. Uh, they're not going to get the, the top tier linebackers, the, the, the top couple guys, but they're, they're never going to get them at 19 anyway. So uh, I think they're, they're, they're looking pretty good. I think, and that's what people are saying, tackle then linebackers. So, and that's what the model is saying as well. Okay, so yeah, so with the two linebackers, the two big ones are the Penn State linebacker Micah Parsons and the Notre Dame linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, and it sounds like both guys, per the model, will be gone by 19. 
it's it's, it's saying ten percent for each one at nineteen would be still there. So it's possible, um, but remember also you only need one of those two to be there. So it's 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 something more than um, something more than ten percent. But it, it's it is a small it's it's still a small chance. And then the linebackers after them, there's kind of this drop off where the next best ones have these kind of second round, lower second round uh, grades. So with the quarterbacks, you've got the big five all going in the top ten, and that does coincide more or less with what the mocks have been saying. With drafting quarterbacks, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast recently, this balance that to me a team like Washington has to strike between being aggressive in going after a franchise quarterback, but also not dismissing this undeniable recent history of all of these trade-ups for quarterbacks not working out. And I know that that which has happened in the past doesn't dictate what's going to happen in the future, but like it's hard to ignore, right? Like all these trade-ups just aren't working out. And so do you want to be in the business of sacrificing, you know, multiple ones, a two, a three, et cetera, for a guy who, I don't know, maybe has like a 30% chance of actually panning out? You've studied draft theory for years. Where are you on? Yes, quarterback is important, but like at some point, don't we have to kind of recognize that these first round quarterbacks are missing more than they're hitting? What do you think is the right way to digest all of this? Well, I, I would start off by saying, agreeing with what you said, that there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Uh, even these so-called, you know, Lock picks, these, you know, top three, four, five picks that are supposed to be kind of lock NFL ready. I mean, just go look back in, in recent history and, and look at the, you know, the Trubisky's of the world and, you know, the Daniel Joneses of the world. And, um, you don't have to look for Darnold. Um, you know, you just, you had, you know, Mahomes was in the middle of the round, Deshaun Watson, you know, he was not in the top five. I think it was the seventh pick right so you can afford to you know depending on how the the draft is set up and where the players are kind of going to fall if you're if you're in the middle of the round you can wait for a player to kind of fall to you rather than spend a ton of capital uh to to kind of jump up because there's really there's really very little chance that you're really getting anything so let me put it this way like the probability that the first quarterback taken is going to be, is going to work out to be better than the second quarterback taken in a draft is very slightly over 55%. And then the probability that this, the second best taken is going to be better, work out better kind of career wise for the franchise than the third quarterback taken, you know, just barely under 55%. That's just a sliver better than a coin flip. So when you're dealing with those kinds of coin flips, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend a ton of capital. And the worst part about what teams tend to do when they do this is they don't value future draft picks nearly enough. They devalue them so much. Uh, and you can't understand why, right? The, the GMs and the coaches and the, you know, the, the scouting departments, they're not going to be around anymore, uh, you know, two years out when you've given away, you know, the first and second round picks. So, uh, that's almost the worst part about it is that those future draft picks, it's like monopoly money and they, they just give them away. So, and we're talking with ESPN analytics expert, Brian Burke. So if, if you are a team that has that lack of long-term certainty at quarterback, what do you think the right approach is just to kind of wait until 
you know, it's reasonable to trade up for a quarterback or a quarterback, you know, falls to you? Or like, do you need to go all out every offseason until you find that guy? And maybe even, I know some teams have advocated for this, like stockpile at quarterbacks. The Eagles kind of did this a few years ago. We just bring in a bunch of people and just hope that one of them yeah. sticks. What, what do you think is the right way in terms of like team building to approach trying to get a franchise quarterback? Well, yeah, Washington's in a tough spot in particular at 19. So if they, they just had one fewer win this, you know, this past season, we, this would be a very different conversation. It wouldn't be so prohibitively expensive to move up a few picks, leapfrog somebody. Um, but I, I think in general, you, you have to, you let them fall to you. You, you let them fall. I mean, you, you've got, you know, you've got, you do have hits at the bottom of the first round occasionally. Um, they're not, you know, you, you may stumble into a Joe Flacco type person, you know, who's not going to be a, you know, an all pro. He's not, but he's going to be good enough to win you football games and be competitive. And if you get lucky, you're, you're going to win a Super Bowl. Um, you, you, Lamar Jackson was, you know, falling into the second round. So those do, those do exist. Um, so I, unless, unless it, you know, unless you're there in the top 10, Moving up into that top ten, uh, doing something like what San Francisco did doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, this is a peculiar draft because I think perhaps um, I think perhaps the uh, teams are getting smarter about their picks, and uh, and especially quarterback needy teams, and they're, they're going to be off the board right away. But that's not the case in, in a lot of drafts. A lot of drafts, quarterbacks are going you know they're, they're going to fall down. Uh, the ranks. Unfortunately for Washington, that's that's not going to be this year. Another thing with quarterback is, okay, everyone recognizes how important it is. There is that principle in analytics of like when everyone is zigging, you should be zagging. And you know, the whole money ball thing of like exploit the market inefficiency. And so with every team valuing quarterbacks so much, putting so much draft capital into quarterbacks, paying quarterbacks so much, is there anything to the idea of don't do those things and just build up everything except quarterback and then just, just try to get by at quarterback because you'll be able to do so in a way that can exploit some of these inefficiencies? Or is it such now that just quarterback matters so much and there's no getting around that? Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. Like, offense in the NFL is, you know, they say football is this ultimate team sport, but offense really isn't. It's this hybrid between an individual sport, kind of like golf or tennis, which is the quarterback, and the other 10 players on offense. It is incredibly important, right? But, um, you know, at, at the same time, you, you do have this principle called what you were talking about, zigging and zagging. Like what fancy word for it, I would say, is intransitivity. And so, like, take, for example, you know, the 4-3 defense was – you know, all the vogue, all the rage forever. And then teams started running this 3-4 because it was easy to find these big giant tackles because you needed smaller, faster t- tackles for the 4-3. And so now the 3-4 the is in vogue. And then it became easier to find the 4-3 type of defensive lineman. So it, it kind of goes in circles, these cycles. Uh, a really interesting case is right up the road, um, my hometown of Baltimore, right? And so they did just that. They said, you know what? These Tom Brady's and Peyton Manning's of the world are really hard to find. And everybody else is trying to find, you know, follow that, that cookie cutter, follow that path to success. What if we are, um, you know, my, <laughs> my, uh, my other, uh, my alma mater, Navy, what if we're the Navy of the NFL? Um, and so, you know, Navy success is like, 
well, we can't replicate, we can't recruit the players that all the other teams are getting. So let's have, let's beat them with scheme and let's get these players that maybe don't fit the cookie cutter, you know, division one, uh, FBS, you know, profile. Um, but they're going to fit perfectly in our scheme and do what we ask them to do. So there, there is a lot, a lot to that. Now, if you know, you can't, I think you really need to little capture lightning in a bottle. I think if, if you're, you know, going the, the, um, the route where, okay, we'll just take, take it mid to low, you know, level quarterback, somebody, you know, might be ranked 20th to 30th or something, and then hope the rest of the team, um, gets us to the Super Bowl. It's possible it's happened that, you know, we saw it, um, you know, every couple of years, but that's very, very difficult to do. One of the problems, and this will be a problem for Washington, is you know the, the strength of their team last year was defense, and defense tends to regress pretty quickly uh, because offense is so dependent on the quarterback. As long as you have that same quarterback, it, it regresses from year to year, meaning it, it it slides back to kind of average. So if you have a really really good defense, it's hard to sustain that for multiple years, uh, just because of injuries and, and other things. Um, but if you have a top, top notch quarterback, you're going to be in, you know, you're going to be knocking on the playoff door, you know, year in and year out. Final question for you, and I appreciate your time so much. So one of the great things that ESPN has innovated is the total QBR stat, which is as good as any stat out there when it comes to evaluating really any NFL player, but obviously specifically quarterback. Is the QBR stat uh, in any way predictive or is it more so just that something that is reflective? I.e. like you want to see who was good in a game or in a season, you look at QBR, but it doesn't necessarily tell you about what is going to come from that player. Right. That's a good question. Um, it is what we would call descriptive, which means it's past looking. Um, we do have a version that's sort of forward looking and uh, that, that helps power our FPI metric, right? So our FPI is predictive. We're, we're trying to predict games and predict season outcomes. So FPI incorporates a, a predictive quarterback um, number. But QB, think of QBR as just a much, much better version of passer rating. Yeah, passer rating is the worst. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so over people bringing up passer rating. It's so flawed, as you know. In so many ways, uh, QBR is great. I mean, nothing's perfect, but yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'll be the first person I've worked on it. A lot of it's based, they built it before I came to ESPN, but a lot of it's based on my prior work. Um, and it's not perfect, uh, but it, it's just much better than passer rating. That's, and that's all we, you know, we set out to do really. Yeah. And it incorporates expected points, right? Which you were big on writing about years ago. Yep. Yeah. Expected points and air yards and, um, you know, it, it accounts for things like scrambles and designed runs and, uh, even passer rating doesn't even count sacks, right? So, it, um, QBR accounts for all those things. So yeah. It's much better. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, Brian, it's great to catch up. It's great to talk with you. Uh, always enjoy it so much. Appreciate your time and all the best to you, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Al. So another night, another victory for our wizards. The damn Washington wizards. Yes, sir, Stephen A. Thank you very much. And this time, the victory came over the reigning, defending NBA champion Los Angeles Lakers, albeit without LeBron James. But the Wizards improved to 28-34, and 34, a 116-107 win 
over the Lakers at Capital One Arena on Wednesday night. So this is another victory for the Wiz against a Western Conference team. The Wizards now, remarkably, are 18 and 11 versus Western Conference teams this season as compared to being 10 and 23 versus Eastern Conference teams this season. I can't say that with a straight face. It just, it makes zero sense. And yet it is the case. It is so typical of our Wizards. They improved to 11 and 2 over the last 13 games. They're now just six games below 500. Now, also on Wednesday night, Charlotte Hornets lost at the Boston Celtics, 120-111, and the Chicago Bulls lost at the New York Knicks, 113-94. So, if you Google up your NBA standings, the Wizards still are 10th in the Eastern Conference, 28-34, and game and a half behind the Indiana Pacers for 9th, two games behind the Hornets for 8th, and four and a half games behind the Miami Heat for seventh. Remember, play in tournament, seeds seven through 10 in each conference. So the Wizards, as we speak, are pretty comfortably in the play in tournament. Wizards are two games ahead of both the Bulls and the Toronto Raptors. Bulls and Raptors, each team is 26 and 36. Wizards are 28 and 34. Now, like I said, no LeBron James on Wednesday night. So we're not doing backflips over this win over the Lakers. But the way the Wizards season is gone, you don't assume anything with any opponent. And the Wizards ended up playing a really good game against the Lakers. Wizards never trailed in the second half. They trailed by six in the second quarter at 39-33, then erupted for a 65-40 run for a 19-point fourth quarter lead at 98-79. This was another game in which the Wizards were bad on threes, but very good on twos, with just six of 18 on threes, as compared to 41 of 72 on twos. Wizards were having their way inside for a good chunk of this game. Rui Hachimura had one of the more vile dunks that you'll ever see, and it was over Anthony Davis. I mean, really one of the highlights, one of the snapshots of this Wizards season, Rui doing AD dirty in one spot on Wednesday night. And keep this in mind, the Lakers came into this game number one in the NBA in defensive rating, which is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com, against the number one defensive team in the league. Even without LeBron James, the Wizards put up 116 points. The Wizards own the Lakers in many ways inside, like I said, 41 of 72 on twos. And the Wizards themselves played some defense on Wednesday night. This has been one of the characteristics of this rise of the Wizards. Again, 11-2 and over the last 13 games. The Wizards' defense has gotten better. No, it's not perfect. Yes, you will still see things like the Wizards completely break down and get scorched. I mean, that has happened as the Wizards have won some of these games, but the Wizards' defense has been appreciably better. Wizards held the Lakers on Wednesday night to just 42 points over the second and third quarters. That's outstanding. I mean, how many singular quarters have we seen the Wiz give up, say, 42 points this season? Wizards on Wednesday night held the Lakers to 42 over the second and third quarters. Uh, Wizards held Anthony Davis over those second and third quarters to just four points on one of six shooting and one rebound. And it's not like Davis didn't play a lot for whatever reason over the second and third quarters. He totaled 15 minutes 35 seconds of playing time, and yet still, the Wizards held him in check to, again, the tune of one of six shooting, one rebound, just four points. And the Wizards, while they themselves may not have done well on threes, the Wizards also held the Lakers to just 10 of 34 on threes for the game. So a lot to like with the Wizards from a team standpoint on Wednesday night. Bradley Beal, three of five on threes, eight of 13 on twos. He had 27 points, three rebounds, three assists versus four turnovers. Russell Westbrook, 
had a terrific game. You know, we always kind of monitor with Westbrook. Yeah, did he get a triple-double? But also, how did he shoot the ball? Did he have a lot of turnovers? And the answer is he shot the ball well, and he had just two turnovers the entire game. Westbrook, one of three on three, six of 13 on twos. He extends his single season and career franchise records with a 30th triple-double, finishes with 18 points, 18 rebounds, and 14 assists versus two turnovers to go with two steals. Westbrook was awesome on Wednesday night. He is now a mere five triple-double shy of Oscar Robertson's all-time NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles. The Big O had 181. Westbrook now at 176. You know, Wizards have 10 games left in the regular season. Westbrook very much could break the record this season in terms of the Oscar Robertson all-time mark for regular season triple-doubles. So Beal was good. Westbrook was really good. Alex Len was very good for a second consecutive game. You know, Len has been starting, but he really hasn't played a ton. Len starts for a 25th consecutive game on Wednesday night. The playing time for second straight game is up 24 minutes, 37 seconds. And Len, a very efficient 18 points over those 24 minutes, 37 seconds. 18 points on 7 of 13 shooting, 9 rebounds and two blocks. Len's been very good here lately. Wizards again got some key performances off the bench. This has been another staple of the rise of the Wiz. Various guys doing well off the bench. Daniel Gafford had another good game on Wednesday night. Eight points, four or five shooting, six rebounds, and just 13.05 as a reserve. Is Smith whose praises I've been singing on this podcast. Another good game for him, not so much from an assist standpoint, but from a scoring standpoint. 12 points, 4-6 shooting in 18-01 off the bench. We had a Chandler Hutchison sighting on Wednesday night. Chandler Hutchison, remember the Wizards got him and Gafford uh, on trade deadline day, on which the Wizards, remember, dealt away Troy Brown Jr. and Mo Wagner. Hutchison had been buried with the Chicago Bulls and largely has been buried with the Wizards. He's racked up already a bunch of DNPCDs, but Hutchison played on Wednesday night and played well. Eight points, four, seven shooting, six rebounds in 19-11 off the bench. And Robin Lopez may be the single most efficient big man in the NBA this season in terms of scoring another very efficient performance. Eight points in just eight minutes, 31 seconds off the bench. Hard to be much better than that. Eight points in 8-31 as a reserve. He went four or six from the field. Now, Wizards won this game despite a bad game for Davies Bertans. 0 for 6 on threes, no points in 24 minutes, one second of playing time. Uh, it's not been a good season for Bertans, and that continued on Wednesday night. I mentioned Hachimura. He had that sickening dunk over Anthony Davis, which was the highlight of the night. A nasty right-handed dunk on AD, who went crashing to the floor. But Rui overall really didn't have that good of a game. 29 minutes, 32 seconds as a starter. Just one rebound in nearly 30 minutes of playing time. Uh, did have 12 points on four of eight shooting. And Haul Neto, who does continue to start. This is now six consecutive starts for him. Uh, five points, two assists, one turnover in 22 minutes, 37 seconds of playing time. But the Wizards get another win. And it's been so nice to see. Wizards are playing so much better. You know, there are bigger picture conversations that we can have. We have had to an extent here. But in the meantime, the Wizards are making this charge. The Wizards are getting production from a lot of different people. And if you just kind of narrow this down to the Wizards' top two players, Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, you know, there was a lot going into the season, as you may remember, of can these two coexist? Will these two play well together? You know, is this going to be an ugly marriage? Are these two going to have problems the way Beal and John Wall had problems? Or is this going to be a dynamic duo? And while we don't know for sure what's happening behind the scenes, everything we're seeing on the basketball court sure seems to be fine. 
Bradley Beal has had a very good offensive season. Westbrook has been a madman with these triple doubles. And as the Wizards have played well, it's been in large part because of Westbrook playing better. Remember, early in the season, he dealt with some injury stuff. He wasn't playing in back-to-backs. His performances really weren't that great. They've gotten a lot better. You know, Westbrook has had a good number of these efficient triple doubles uh, over these last few weeks. So like that by itself is encouraging that Beal and Westbrook are very good players, are coexisting just fine. And I do feel like this offseason, especially with each guy able to opt out of his contract after next season, Wizards have got to make a choice. You're either going to blow this up or you're going to go all in. And the way the Wizards are playing, you really feel like going all in may well be the option that makes the most sense. So if you're going to do that, you need to attract a third major piece. The fact that Beal and Westbrook are doing well and coexisting well, I think would help you to attract a third major piece. Now, who is that piece? Hard to say. Would that piece even want to come here? Hard to say. It's not been often that an NBA superstar has wanted to come to the Wizards. It's actually one of the things that you liked about Russell Westbrook being traded here. He wanted to be traded here. You know, he has this very good relationship with Scott Brooks. So it's okay to enjoy this. It's okay to feel good about what the Wizards are doing here. So 10 games left in their regular season. Wizards have played 62 games. Remember, this is a 72-game NBA regular season. And what's next for the Wizards is a bunch of road games. Uh, Wizards, again, 10 regular season games left. Seven of the 10 are road games. Wizards are at the Cleveland Cavaliers Friday night at 7.30, at the Dallas Mavericks Saturday night at 9, and then a big game from a standing standpoint when it comes to your play-in standings in the Eastern Conference. Wizards are home to the Indiana Pacers Monday night at 7. There have been many strange aspects to the Nationals' 2021 season so far. Maybe one of the oddest is this. The Nationals are 9-12, and and yet the wins have actually been rather convincing wins. And we had another one of those on Wednesday night, an 8-2 win over the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida, for a two-game split in that series. The Nats tattooed the Blue Jays' starting pitcher, Steven Matz, to the tune of six runs in three and two-thirds innings, despite him entering the game with an ERA at 231 over four starts. Eric Fetty was great. He gave up one run in six innings on seven strikeouts. And the Nats ended up winning by six runs. It's been a strange deal. The Nationals have one of the worst run differentials in baseball. In fact, the Nats still have the worst run differential in the National League at minus 22. And yet when you look at some of their wins so far this season, you're looking at 6 nothing, 6-2, 7-1, now 8-2. Of course, the bad run differential is a function of some hideous losses. You know, Nats have lost games 14-3, nothing. 6-12-5, 6-0, 4-0. Nats have been shut out, remember, five times over the first 21 games. So yes, it's been a strange season, no doubt for the Nationals, for many reasons. Among them, though, the bizarro nature of some of these final scores. But bottom line is, the Nationals played themselves a really good game on Wednesday night. And I think you start with Fetty, who may well be blossoming before our eyes. And it's funny because Eric Fetty got wrecked in his first start this season. Eric Fetty in a 7-6 Nats loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader on April 7th, allowed six runs, five earned in one and two-thirds innings. But take a listen to Fetty now over his four starts since that initial bad start. Just six runs allowed in 20 and two-thirds innings. That's a 261 ERA and 24 strikeouts versus eight walks. He's been tremendous for the Nationals as they've been without John Lester for the entirety of this regular season so far and have had Steven Strasburg for just two starts due to injury. Fetty on Wednesday night, one run in six innings, seven strikeouts, 
Gave up just two hits, albeit two extra base hits, a homer and a double. Issued three walks, though one of those was intentional. He threw 98 pitches, 59 of which were strikes. Fetty gave up the lone run that he allowed uh, on a leadoff homer, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., in the bottom of the fifth inning. Otherwise, it was one impressive inning after another from Fetty. Perfect bottom of the first. He strikes out Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for the third out, the same Vlad Jr. who hit two homers off Max Scherzer in Tuesday night's Nats loss, the same Vlad Jr. who totaled three homers off Nats pitching in Tuesday night's loss. Uh, Fetty in a scoreless bottom of the second, struck out Kevin Biggio for the second out, struck out Joe Panic for the third out. Fetty in a perfect bottom of the fourth, struck out Marcus Semien for the second out, struck out Joe Panic for the third out. Fetty in a perfect bottom of the sixth, struck out Kevin Biggio for the third out. And you may have noticed a trend there, a whole lot of strikeouts. That's the thing. Eric Fetty has become much more of a strikeout pitcher so far this season. One of the real concerning things about Fetty in this question of, is this guy ever going to blossom into what he was supposed to blossom into? Because remember, the Nats spent a number 18 overall pick on Eric Fetty. Nats took Fetty with the number 18 overall pick in the 2014 draft. But the thing with Fetty that stuck out maybe as much as anything was, he's not been a strikeout pitcher. And in this day and age, that's a problem. If you don't have swing and miss stuff, if you're not missing bats, it's hard to really be a great pitcher. Not impossible, but it's not easy to do. And Eric Fetty, over the previous two seasons, 2019 and 2020, had a strikeouts per nine innings of just 4.8. Especially in this day and age of the three true outcomes and guys striking out like crazy, that really stuck out as a bad thing. 4.8 strikeouts per nine innings. And yet, here you have Fetty during this recent run. Again, the four starts since the initial blow-up start. The guy's got 24 strikeouts in 20 and two-thirds innings. Now, is this what Eric Fetty now is, a strikeout pitcher? Don't know. Hard to say. This is still a pretty small sample size, but it's encouraging. There's no doubt about that. And I will say this in defense of Eric Fetty, because I've been waiting on him to blossom. I've been like, boy, this guy just is never going to become what he was supposed to become as, again, a number 18 overall pick in the 2014 draft. But Eric Fetty, yes, he's been around for a while, and yes, he's appeared now in parts of five major league seasons, but he entered this season having totaled just 194 major league innings. That's it. And that's really not that many innings. Like for a good starting pitcher, that's what you do in a season, 194 innings. Fetty had totaled that innings amount over four major league seasons, 2017 through 2020. And also with Fetty, you know, he's been jerked around by the Nationals. He's been jerked between the major leagues and the minors. He's been jerked between starter and reliever. So if it's taken a little while for him to get going here, it is kind of sort of understandable. And we don't know if he's truly gotten going here. Maybe this just ends up being a nice little run, a a nice cute little surge that Eric Fetty had in 2021. And he's basically never heard from again. But for now, I'm willing to believe that maybe, just maybe, Eric Fetty has figured some stuff out. And it sounds so odd, but it is so true. Where would the Nats be this season without Eric Fetty? Without Eric Fetty and Joe Ross, where would the Nationals be this season, given the injury issues and the uh, struggling issues for Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin, respectively? So Fetty was very good on Wednesday night. Nats bullpen ends up uh, giving you one run in three innings. Three Nats relievers appeared. Sam Clay scored a seventh. Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand pitched on Wednesday night. Each guy had not pitched since the previous Wednesday, since April 21st, that one nothing win over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park. Hudson did have some problems on Wednesday night. He allowed a run in the bottom of the eighth on a first pitch leadoff homer by Bo Bichette. So Hudson hasn't pitched in a week, comes into the game, first pitch he throws, bomb by Bo Bichette. And Hudson did later give up a win out first pitch single to Randall Gritchick. But the Nationals obviously 
had a substantial lead at the time. And then Brad Hand uh, did toss a perfect ninth inning. It was a very good night for a second straight night for the Nationals offense. And we start with that with Trey Turner, who has been so good so far this season. Didn't do as well batting in the three spot, has been moved back to the number one spot, and he's right back at home. You know, I don't know that Trey Turner will admit to this. I don't even know if this is a thing or not. But it is hard to ignore Trey this season so much better in the number one spot as compared to the number three spot. But Trey Turner and that 9-5 loss to the Blue Jays on Tuesday night gave you two homer game, two for four with two solo homers and a hit by pitch. Trey Turner in this 8-2 win on Wednesday night, four for five with a double and three singles. He had a leadoff single in the top of the first, a single in the Nats three-run third, a one-out single in the Nats three-run fourth, despite having been down in the count at 1.12, and a leadoff double in the top of the sixth inning. Trey Turner over 88 plate appearances so far this season. Batting average of 317, on base percentage of 364, slugging percentage of 585. He's almost slugging 600, Turner is, on the season. He's been tremendous. Also, Ryan Zimmerman. So Zimmerman, of course, was like buried last week. Davey Martinez, for whatever reason, didn't play Zim. Zim plays in both games of this series against the Blue Jays in Florida. You obviously had the DH, so Josh Bell was the DH for the two games. Zimmerman was the starting first baseman for the two games. And Zim, like Turner, productive in each game. Zimmerman, the number three batter in each game. He, in the loss on Tuesday night, has a one-out five-pitch walk, top of the fifth, one-out two-run homer in the top of the seventh. And then Zimmerman in this win on Wednesday night, three for five with three singles and two RBI. Zimmerman had a two-out single in the top of the first, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. A two-run single in the Nats three-run third, despite having been down in that count at 1.02. And a leadoff single in the top of the ninth on a 1-2 pitch. So how about that hitting by Zimmerman on Wednesday night? Three singles, each of which came in a count in which Zimmerman was down either 0-2 or 1-2. I mean, you talk, you talk about like professional hitter. I know that's a cliche in baseball, but that's what Zimmerman certainly was on Wednesday night. Now, he did get doubled up at first base off a of Starling Castro lineout in that top of the ninth inning. But, you know, by then the game had well been decided. It is, though, another instance of the Nationals making an unnecessary out on the base paths. But, you know, I mentioned Trey Turner's slash line so far this season. Here's the Ryan Zimmerman slash line in half the plate appearances that Turner has accumulated. Trey has 88 plate appearances. Zimmerman has just 44, but he's batting 333. He's got a 364 on base. He's got a 571 slugging percentage. Zimmerman needs to play more. And I know with him, less is more. But he's been good enough to where this thing of him not playing for a week is ridiculous, especially with the struggles that Josh Bell has had so far this season. Ah, speaking of Josh Bell, he did homer on Wednesday night. Josh Bell, a two-run homer in the top of the fifth inning. So hip, hip, hooray for Josh Bell. Just his fourth extra base hit on the season. Just his sixth hit overall on the season. But let me say this about Josh Bell, because I was looking at some of the advanced data with him during the Nationals game on Wednesday night. So if you go by some of the StatCast stuff, Josh Bell came into that game on Wednesday night with an average exit velocity in this 2021 season of 93.8 miles per hour. That's actually better than his average exit velocity in his career best 2019 season. His average exit velocity that season was 92.4 miles per hour. So he's actually been hitting balls faster than he hit balls in his career best 2019 season. He's been hitting balls plenty hard. The big difference for Josh Bell was his launch angle. 
Josh Bell came into this game on Wednesday night with a horrendous average launch angle on the season of minus 0.4 degrees. Bell's average launch angle in that career-best 2019 season was 13 degrees. That's unbelievable in terms of the discrepancy from 13 degrees in 2019 to minus 0.4 degrees in 2021. That's why Josh Bell hasn't been getting the results that you want because he's been hitting balls plenty hard. That's not been the issue. So good to see him elevate on Wednesday night, especially with that home run. And Josh Harrison hit a home run on Wednesday night. Josh Harrison was the number two batter on Wednesday night uh, off being the number six batter in the loss on Tuesday night. By the way, uh, Bell was the number six batter on Wednesday night. So Bell actually did get dropped in the lineup from number four to number six on Wednesday night. We certainly should note that. Uh, Harrison up to the two spot and Harrison finishes the game with a home run, a hit by pitch and three RBI. Drew a hit by pitch in the Nats three run third. He smashed a one out three run homer in the top of the fourth to drive Steven Matz out of the game. Harrison has had a productive season so far. He's cooled off a bit lately, but still the overall numbers, 397 on base percentage, 471 slugging percentage. You certainly will take that from Josh Harrison. Also, Starling Castro had another RBI on Wednesday night. Castro one for five with an RBI single in the Nats three-run third. You know, Castro actually hasn't been that good of a hitter this season, just a 286 on base, just a 354 slugging, but he actually leads the team with 13 RBI. To to give you an idea, I guess, of how Castro has contributed, but also to give you an idea of how misleading runs batted in can be, because if you just go by RBI, you'd say, well, Starling Castro has been the Nats best hitter this season. It's not even close. Trey Turner's been the Nats best hitter this season, followed by guys like Juan Soto and Ryan Zimmerman. But Castro does have the 13 RBI so far on the year. And Victor Robles was again in the number nine spot in Davies lineup on Wednesday night, batting behind Hernan Perez. Hernan Perez was the Nats starting right fielder, not Yadiel Hernandez. And Perez, who has barely played, at least as a batter, as a fielder uh, lately. Perez, we of course, we've seen in some blowout losses as a reliever. Uh, but Perez, number eight batter, starting right fielder, 0 for 4 with two strikeouts, but still bats ahead of Robles. You know, Davey likes to do the pseudo dual leadoff batter thing of Robles ninth, Trey Turner first. I, I wish Davey would get off that. Uh, but Robles did get on base a few times, one for three with a single and a walk. He had a leadoff single in the Nats three run 30 at a one out seven pitch walk in the Nationals three run fourth inning. Still got to get Kyle Schwarber going. I'm not going to get off this until he gets going truly. 0 for 3 with a walk and a hit by pitch. Schwarber had a leadoff five pitch walk in the Nats two run fifth and had a leadoff hit by pitch in the top of the seventh, but he's still not been very good uh, so far this season. But the Nationals get the win and the Nationals are 9 and 12 in a National League East in which not a single team has a winning record. Tied atop the division are the Philadelphia Phillies and Atlanta Braves each team at 12 and 12. Then you got the New York Mets at 9 and 10. Then you have the Miami Marlins at 11, 13. And then yes, you do have the Nats technically in last place at 9 and 12, but just a game and a half out of first place. One and a half games separates the five teams in the NL East, all of whom are 500 or worse. The division has been a big flop so far this season. There's no other way to put it, but the Nationals obviously benefit from that with the lackluster 9-12 and start. Nats are off Thursday, then comes a six-game homestand against the Miami Marlins and Atlanta Braves. For the Orioles on Wednesday night, another loss, and this was a shutout loss. 7-0 the final to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So the Orioles have dropped two of the first three games in this four-game series. Won the series opener 4-2 on Monday night, but a 5-1 loss on Tuesday night, and then this shutout loss 
on Wednesday night. O's now 10 and 14 on the season. Interestingly, 3 and 10 at home versus 7 and 4 on the road. So two big things I want to get into with the O's here. Number one is Dean Kramer was back starting for the Orioles on Wednesday night. Kramer was the Orioles' number five starter in the rotation to begin the season, then got optioned to the alternate training side at Double A Bowie after his previous start, which actually was a pretty good start. One run in four and two-thirds innings, six strikeouts, and a 6-1 win at the Texas Rangers on April 17th. But Kramer was back to struggling on Wednesday night. Six runs in four and a third innings on 10 hits, two homers, two doubles, and six singles. Did issue no walks, but he also had a wild pitch had four strikeouts. So for Dean Kramer now on the season, four starts, he has an ERA of 840, 14 runs allowed in 15 innings. And look, tanking team like the Orioles, guys like Dean Kramer are what you're playing the season for, trying to figure out if you have something in the guy. Dean Kramer was one of the guys who the Orioles got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade in July 2018. But so far, not so good, albeit in just four starts. I I would like to see guys like Kramer, though, just be thrown out there every five days and just see what they have. You know, the Orioles are going to do a lot of mixing and matching. I get it. They're going to take advantage of guys with options and ship them up and down and back up and then back down. But I want to see guys like Kramer and Keegan Aiken eventually get their reps. I know they got to earn it. You can't just be handing things to people. But this is what this season is about, a season to evaluate your young players. You're not contending for anything, okay? So figure out what you have and your younger guys. To that end, I did like what we heard from the Orioles manager, Brandon Hyde, in his pregame Zoom press conference on Wednesday. He got asked about the struggling Ryan Mountcastle, and is Mountcastle going to be sent to the alternate training site at AA Bowie, or maybe to AAA Norfolk, as finally the minor league season is set to get going here soon. AAA Norfolk season is set to begin on May 6th, and Hyde essentially said, no, uh, we're going to keep Mountcastle here, at least for now. At least that's what was suggested. Uh, Hyde said, quote, right now for me, I'd like to see him work through these struggles and his tough start, end quote. So Ryan Mountcastle did have a hit on Wednesday night. He had a two-out single in the bottom of the fifth inning as the starting DH and number seven batter, but he's had a hard time of it here. Uh, Mountcastle, even with that hit, 88 plate appearances on the season. He's batting just 181. He's got an on-base percentage of just 216. He's got a slugging percentage of just 277. And it's disappointing because this is a guy who last season over 140 major league plate appearances was really good. He had a 333 batting average, 386 on base, 492 slugging, hit five home runs. You know, this is a guy who the Orioles took with the number 36 overall pick in the 2015 draft. He was ranked by MLB Pipeline this past January as the number 77 prospect in all of baseball. So, you know, I was excited for Mountcastle. I know a lot of people were excited for Mountcastle coming into the season. It's been a tough go of it so far, but like I just talked about with Dean Kramer, let the guy figure things out at the major league level, okay? I mean, I I know there can be some value in going back down and then coming back up, and some guys do benefit from that, and maybe Mountcastle would, you know, who the heck knows? But again, with this season, the nature of it for the Orioles, not contending for anything, let guys take their lumps, figure some stuff out, and you figure stuff out. You figure out what you have in people like Dean Kramer and Ryan Mountcastle. And with Mountcastle, I always will go back to what happened with Nick Markakis 15 years ago. Nick Markakis in his 2006 rookie season was just thrown out there. It was a lost season for the Orioles. Markakis was young. He was well-regarded. The Orioles just put him out there and let him take his lumps. And he got off to a bad start. You know, Nick Markakis in 06 had an OPS of just 597 
through games on June 13th of that season. But Marcakis, over the rest of the season, raised his OPS by 202 points, finished the season with a 7-9. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 99 OPS. Let the guy try to sort through some things, try to develop, and maybe you accelerate the development by just keeping them at the major league level. I, I'm not interested in guys being jerked up and jerked down throughout the year. I want guys to get a shot and see what they can do. And if ever there's a team that can do this, it's the 2021 Orioles, okay? They're in that classic spot of they're not here to win games, even though they'll tell you they're here to win games. And it's not like they're not trying to win games, but this is about player development. Let guys develop. Game four for the Orioles against the Yankees Thursday afternoon at 105. Jorge Lopez versus Jordan Montgomery. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming, and there's a whole lot of feedback that should be coming with what's going down on Thursday night. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com. The next time that we speak on this podcast, the first round of the 2021 NFL draft will be over. Our worlds as Washington football team fans could be forever changed, or maybe not. Also on uh, Thursday night, by the way, Capitals Penguins at Capital One Arena, big game for the Caps against Pittsburgh. So a very big night in DC sports, a lot happening on Thursday night. Enjoy it. I'll talk to you on Friday. He's super smart. 